Welcome to a special episode of The Pulse. We are so thrilled to be sitting down with Bill Hare, and you know him for so many reasons, for his work with Contemporary Acapella as a producer, working with Boca, Cara nominations, and RARB, and he's been a full-time recording engineer and producer for 30-plus years, specializing in Contemporary Acapella production since 1989. So he is with us today to talk about this impressive career and what's up next. So welcome, Bill. Thank you. Glad to be here. We are so excited. And usually we start with like how this started for you. And I think everyone needs, if they haven't heard this story yet, how did you end up in acapella? Because back when you were doing it early on, I know I came into the scene a little bit later, but we were still recording in pretty poor conditions and you kind of changed all that. So how did you end up with us fine folk? Well, it, it is an interesting story because it is not at all where I wanted to end up. I was not even planning on being a recording engineer, let alone a producer. I was a, always had been a, an instrumentalist, and I'd majored in electric bass with the intent of going into it as being a studio musician, much like The Wrecking Crew. That was the sort of stuff that I really loved. I actually took a jazz major and a classical major just to really kind of, you know, overblow the chops and then be able to play anything in the studio knowing that I was really aiming to be a pop musician. And in some ways, taking the jazz major kind of pushed me a little further, where after that, I went and studied with Carol Kay from the Wrecking Crew, who was actually one of my idols growing up. And it was just such an honor to work with her directly and learn from her directly. And when I first met her, she goes, okay, show me how you play. And I go, okay, here's a little Jaco Pastorius, you know? And she looks at me and says, wow, that's really good. You know, no one's ever going to pay you to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she goes, I'm just going to teach you how to play a half note again and make it mean something and it was great she got me to appreciate just to you know hang on a note or play nothing or whatever just to you know how to make something tasteful so i went into that as a studio musician i started getting some gigs in studios just doing commercial work and that was great because that was what i wanted to do and this was the beginning of the 80s so there was no real midi sort of stuff there was no home recording we didn't use computers for anything it was you know, completely analog in those days so it was still a viable art that you could get paid for and that's what i did for a couple years and i started getting familiar with the different studios in the area and one of the studios that i was working in Quite often, I'd actually even, you know, formed a little band with uh, some people at the studio. We actually had our own kind of wrecking crew that played for various clients from, you know, we, we had like a, a Bob Dylan sort of guy named Shasta who, you know, we did all of his records. and We just played background for everything. Anyway, at one point we were doing a session and the studio owner came in. And she was a young woman of 26. She had just bought the studio a couple years before because her boyfriend was doing a lot of work in that studio. And I guess she had come into some money. And she came in and told us that she had just been diagnosed with leukemia. And it was really sad, yes. And she, the doctor just said, she has six months to live maximum. I mean, it was wow. it was really bad. I can imagine hearing that at 26. Yeah, she was 26. And she actually, I, I think she didn't even last three months after that, to be honest. Wow. 
she died very quickly. But she came to the staff and the players in the studio and asked if any of us could buy her out. You know, she just needed to kind of divest of everything. And she said, I'd love to see the studio go on, but I'm just going to disappear here. And it was shocking and crazy and so we're our heads were all spinning after that but you know we all kind of talked about it and the drummer of our studio group there had uh, a couple brothers who were lawyers and made some pretty good money and so he talked to his brothers and they went into a partnership to buy the studio now this studio was an eight track studio eight tracks was still a viable professional studio that people would go to in those All days. Right. All right, youngins, go look that up on Google, what an 8-track is. Yes, <laughs> but don't confuse that with like an 8-track tape, which is, you know, the thing that the Brady Munch played their songs on. But yeah, so they bought the studio, and as an 8-track studio, we, we chugged along for another couple months, I guess. And at that point, we really needed to upgrade to the next level, you know, because the top studios were mostly 24 track at the time. And there was 16 track there in the middle, which would have doubled our capacity. And we decided we would try to go to 16 or 24 track, but they didn't have the funds to do that. And so I talked to my mother or both my parents actually about it because my dad is a musician and my mother is everybody's stage mom. She was yes. always so supportive <laughs> to everybody. And you know this too, because you've seen her in the community as well. Joan Hare is definitely my Aka mom. Yes, she's, she's the Aka mom to everybody. And I share her with everyone. Anyway, she had recently inherited some money after her mother died. And we talked about it a bit and decided we could join them in the partnership. And we, if I remember correctly, we went into a 5149 partnership with them. So we were the minor part. And at that point, I called a friend of mine down in LA who brokers a lot of studio equipment. And he told me that the old Capitol Records system from Studio B was available. It was a 19, you know, early 1970s custom-built Quad 8 slash Electrodyne hybrid that the Capitol engineering team had built. So it was a complete one-of-a-kind, and it came with a, a 3M M56 16 two-inch tape, which is still regarded as probably the best analog format because you get their wider track on this big thing. So, you know, the 24 track actually sounds slightly inferior to a two-inch 16 track. And so you weigh the options of number of tracks versus audio quality. So anyway, we actually made that partnership happen and then went down to Hollywood and grabbed all this stuff out of... Uh, it was actually in a building across the street from Capitol by that time. But and we went into Capitol and, and met the engineers there at the time, including some of the engineers from the 50s who were still there, you know, since this was 1984. You know, we were closer to the 50s then and people who did amazing things and a lot of people who worked on our board that we had just bought. And I think the first thing done on that board was Steve Miller's Joker album. Oh, cool. But there was our equipment was just full of just the spirit of all of the stuff that had been done on it, which was kind of. <laughs> cool to us you know so we brought the thing up to san jose to the studio and we opened as a 16 track with this magical equipment and that was where we started but yeah so my mom came in as the studio manager just 
the most amazing thing that we could have ever have happen because you know none of us knew how to run a studio well my mom didn't either but my <laughs> mom all she had to do was concentrate on this stuff and learned it really quickly and was is of course always good with people and really got us running ship shape while we figured out what we were doing musically and that's kind of how that started. So I did read on your Wikipedia page that you were the first to record voices individually. And this is something that I've heard throughout the community lore. And you were the first to mic singers exactly as one would mic an instrument as an instrumentalist yourself. That kind of makes sense in my head. But tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I've heard that lore too. I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't quite say that's exactly how it works. So here we are back in 1984. I'm starting to learn how stuff works because now I'm a partner in a recording studio. So I have to at least look at these mysterious knobs and learn how to at least switch it on to play a cassette for somebody. I didn't still didn't expect to become a full-fledged recording engineer. But as time went on, I kind of realized that, hey, I actually own this stuff. I can probably just kind of figure out how to do this and do things with my own band, do my own projects. But we still had a staff of engineers that we were paying and they were good and there was no reason to rock that boat. So, you know, we had a good stable of clients and our house engineers would work on that sort of stuff. And I would do things myself or, you know, or with my band or whatever, just to kind of play around with this stuff. About two years into that, I'd actually gotten fair enough to be able to take on some clients and we and as we had staff engineers go elsewhere, we started just not hiring new ones as often because if I did the work, we saved that the money that we were paying Makes to sense. the other engineers. <laughs> so it was it was a little more lucrative that way. So I started taking on more sessions and more sessions. And I was doing a lot of opera. I was doing a lot of the more classical sessions. I left more of the rock sessions to some of the others early on. But then I started doing more of the rock sessions as well. And then I did some vocal jazz with a group at Foothill College in Los Altos, California. A very good group that had a rhythm section and it was just really nice music and I started, you know, I was listening to things like The Singers Unlimited and I grew up listening to The Hilos and things like that. So I had an ear for this sort of vocal music, but not necessarily a cappella yet. I knew of its existence, but more in kind of a jazz sort of way. So I recorded this group and the leader or, or the professor of that group was a guy named Niall Norton, who was already a friend of mine and is a friend of mine to this day. But he told me that he was in an acapella group at Stanford University in 1965 to 1967 called The Mendicants. And he said, this group still exists and they always make terrible records and could I help them out? <laughs> wow. So I said, sure. Not knowing at all what to expect. So he puts me in touch with the mendicants, of course, via phone. We didn't have the internet yet. And <laughs> Wait, you had to actually talk, talk to people to plan, plan these things? things? We had to actually talk, and yeah, it was it was quite crazy. And we had dial tones and everything. So I called them up, or they called me, I don't remember. We made a date, and 16 guys showed up in my studio. I'm looking at them going, okay. It's a little glee club or something. I didn't do any research on them because, of course, you couldn't do research in those days. No. You don't, you don't look anything up. I just, they start, I, I, I just said, okay, what do you guys do? And they start singing and they're, they're singing pop music 
with no instruments. So there's acapella, pop music, and they were doing barbershop and things like that as well, and a little bit of classical music. So it was just this mixture. I was really taken aback by the pop music that they were doing. I just thought it was really strange. I, I think they did a song by the police. It was, maybe it was. That sounds about right for yeah. that era. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was just really strange and weird to hear that because to me it was kind of like Muzak, but even worse. And there was no real sense of groove or backbeat or anything like that. Sometimes they'd snap, you know, you know. Mm-hmm. That was about the extent of percussion. Sometimes that groove was kind of written into the arrangement a little bit and you can feel that but for the most part it wasn't very interesting to me and as I went through it I mean all I could do was put up two microphones and record the sound that they were making. I did not think of recording them individually or anything like that. That is not how you record a glee club or a choir. I was just going by the standard way of doing it. I would just kind of took note that they're doing pop music and not particularly impressed with that. It's hard to win over instrumentalists, I think, even now. <laughs> yeah, but even now, I think if even the most hardened acapella fan heard those recordings, which are much like all of the recordings of collegiate acapella groups that have been done since the 40s right they wouldn't be that impressed either i mean the mindset was completely different yeah i think you have to go back and what mindset was everyone in in that time and then put it in that frame because yeah i go back to my recordings from the mid 90s and i'm like well i mean we this was three takes in a room and half of the group was hung over so <laughs> yes that's exactly what it was it was just this kind of fun thing and there was no reason to spend any money on this it was just you know capture what they do and that's it so i do that we made an album for 750 dollars, i think it was over a couple nights or a couple days and i waved goodbye to them thinking okay i don't have to do that ever again and i could go back to recording whatever else i was recording that week so we fast forward a couple months and I get a call from a different group at Stanford. I'm like, oh, there's another one. And at this point, I still didn't know that this was a thing. Thought, well, this is something weird happening at Stanford, obviously, because now there's two groups. <laughs> Not knowing that there were 150 other groups around the country at that point in colleges doing the same sort of thing. Again, we had no way to reference this stuff unless we wanted to do a lot of work and write some letters and go to some libraries and do all this other stuff and nobody had time for that, didn't care. And so here we go. So then I got a call from another group and I was surprised to hear that there were more than one group at Stanford. You can probably use that other stuff until I get to this the mixed group. So this group was actually the Fleet Street Singers, another all-male, and they were a better group musically and they did more sort of comedy sort of stuff and I recorded them the exact same way that I did the mendicants but it came out a little better partially just because it was musically better but I also decided to get a little closer to them because I felt that the mendicants was a little too roomy and so that kind of gave it a little more pop to it then the mendicants came back to do another album so at this point a whole year had gone by and the leader of the group a musical director of the group came in before we started recording a week or so before because he just wanted to talk and he was saying you know what can we do to make this more cool or more interesting what are the possibilities and he was asking things like you know could, could we mic each person 
And I actually told him that I thought that would be a little weird. I go, that's not really how you hear a group like yours. It's not, of course, again, we had never heard this sound before, so it wasn't a sound yet. So I said, you know, it's going to cost a lot more. And he goes, you know what? We can get a pretty good budget. I said, I'm all for that. (laughs) So, you know, at this point, I'm still a complete mercenary in this. I didn't care as much. You know, I just kind of went from session to session to session and tried to do something as good as I could musically but to me this was kind of a strange experiment and i thought it might get costly but i wasn't i wasn't sure so they came in and i had lined up 16 microphones in a circle and had each one stand at a microphone i think by that time i had a 24 track system so i had eight channels plus i had those 16 channels plus an extra eight to overdub if we needed to yeah and at that point i wasn't thinking that we were going to overdub it was just okay i'm just capturing them in this different way so Mm. we put them all up and i say okay start singing let's see what this sounds like and i was pretty blown away because the one thing i didn't really think about which i should have is that the proximity effect is so different that all of a sudden the basses have all of this low tone. They don't, they just don't sound like in the back of a room. And that's what all acapella recordings sounded like up to that point. There was no bass to them at all. Yeah. That was the first thing I heard was the proximity effects of the basses. And then I'm kind of realizing that, oh, you know, this tenor who was sticking out in the live recording last year, mm-hmm. I can turn him down. And mm-hmm. almost to the point of not hearing him at all. That was kind of a cool thing and even though it sounds just so painfully obvious Mm -hmm. it was not in any of our mindsets yet as to what we were going to hear so of course hearing that started to inspire me to say you know hey let's actually not do the lead vocal live right now let's see if we can get a really good background track because now we have extra channels i'll also say that that first album the year before and then the album with fleet street i didn't record multi-track i just recorded it directly to the stereo two-track quarter inch tape because there were just two microphones so it didn't really matter yeah right i didn't think of post-producing it or eqing it or or whatever you know the eq was happening as it went in i added a little reverb as it went in so there was no post-production thought at all so now i had this multi-track and they're getting crazier and crazier with the songs so the the new song out at that point was mc hammers you can't touch this that was the big hit on the radio and they did this was this was a group from stanford singing this this is this is stanford mendicants yeah this is that first this is that first group i was not impressed with wow at, at this point i'm starting to have a lot of fun with So they do this really cool version of You Can't Touch This. And we're not using click tracks or anything like that, but they're grooving pretty hard. I'm not sure if my memory is exactly right on this, but what I remember is we were listening back to the recording that we had just made, and we're kind of bopping to it. And one of the kids in the group just kind of went, this rudimentary vocal percussion sort of thing. And I was like, what the heck are you doing? That's kind of cool. Because I was also just kind of thinking, you know, what can we do with percussion on these sort of things? Or what can we do about the lack of percussion? Mm -hmm. I I still never thought of 
percussion. I just kind of thought, you know, what do we do about groove? You know, we had hand claps and stuff like that, but this guy just kind of did that. And I thought that was an odd thing. I think he was actually a drummer. And so I said, you know, shall we try to just record that and see if it makes any difference? And, you know, he went in there and, and then again, the proximity effect, all of a sudden he's close up on a microphone and that became a kick drum and the snare sounded kind of cool. And I routed it through a big parametric EQ I had and just did some real notchy spikes on things and found that little snare drum ring and all of a sudden we had vocal percussion on a track not knowing what to call it it just was this thing and i don't know if it was the first time it had happened i know that people have done vocal percussion for hundreds of years in different ways but in this pop context it was different now that thing about miking everybody individually i think it might be true i was the first person to mic a collegiate group of that era individually but there had been amazing recordings going back to the 60s i mean things like the singers unlimited which you know had this exact same proximity effect and stuff like that it just the disconnect there was that they were all individually tracked as a quartet and overdubbed and overdubbed and overdubbed I didn't yeah. think of this as something that you do with a 16 voice group well i mean i know that that idea of sort of messing around with the EQ is something that you that you still do, right? That that is something that a trick that you use to kind of find the right sound. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you go about that? Sure. I mean, in the early days, that was it was just that this thing had opened up in that I could individually EQ tracks. Mm -hmm. Of course, when we were recording a whole choir or glee club with two microphones, you couldn't find that second tenor and get that Turn tweak up, in yeah. there. So that was just the impetus to the very basic starting point of what we were discovering with this was that I could make this guy sharper or duller or deeper or thin him out. And that was about as far as it went that first time because we were just kind of blown away by the sound. And a college student in in Boston named Deke Sharon. Never heard somehow, of him. <laughs> somehow heard this record. And I got a letter from him. Again, a letter. One of those things in the mail? Like the ones that yeah. on paper? that had, had a stamp okay. on it. And I think it was like Eisenhower's face on the stamp or something. <laughs> but I got a letter from Deke. And he had said that, you know, he heard the album and he just thought it was great. And they're giving it an award for this new thing that they're starting called Casa. And I was like going, well, that's really nice, you know, an award. Great. But I was more impressed that some Somebody in Boston had heard something from Connecticut. Oh, oh sorry, California. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, wrong Stanford. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. More impressed by that because again, no internet, no nothing. Things were very localized. The left hand never knew what the right hand was doing. That sort of thing. So things were so localized. I kind of felt at that point that was the first time anything I had ever recorded was heard on the East Coast. I mean, that's how basic we were back then. Yeah. It's like now you're on the East Coast and we're talking. That would have been right. a weird thing. That would have been an expensive long distance call. And and I don't know how we would have recorded that either. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Definitely not seen each other. Yeah. So it, it was a very different time and a very different set of values or whatever. You know, like I said, I was more blown away that somebody in Boston heard this more so than, than that it was being given an award of some sort. I didn't connect that. And I also didn't connect that this was actually so groundbreaking. It was exciting to me just because I learned something. But outside of that, it wasn't a huge deal. I, I knew it sounded a lot better and I go okay well this is the way I'll do
do these albums from now on. But I still had no idea that this would be something that would become kind of my life and my legacy and or whatever. And still at that time, had someone told me that, I probably would have just slashed my wrists and be done with it. <laughs> because, you know, I still wanted to make an impact in pop music and whatever. So... You know, I was still very. I mean, and those minded. those instruments, those basses, still hang in your studio. You do get them down and play they do. them. They do. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I actually still do some studio work as an instrumentalist. Mm-hmm. That's fun too. And I've actually. I mean, I believe you may have even won a, a Grammy for one of those instrumental pieces that you've recorded. Yeah, but you know that Grammy and that huge orchestral stuff and lots and lots of exotic instruments, but that still came from my acapella experience. It still came from. Um, the music director of another Stanford group that I recorded in 1995 called Talisman. That music director was Christopher Tin, who later went on to write all these amazing pieces like Baba Yetu that everybody does in choir. But at this point, he was a 19-year-old college student who was immensely talented. And I, I even knew it back then. And it was just because I had worked with him. I was the only recording engineer he knew. So he kind of kept coming back to me when he was starting to go professional. So I just got to be part of his works every once in a while. So anyway, that was how that started and because it was a little more exciting to me than just kind of sitting around reading a magazine while the two track takes went by you know I mean my job basically was to just make sure things weren't distorting and then hit record and then wait for them to finish the song and then hit stop that was how you recorded choirs and glee clubs back in the day now i was a lot more involved you know with each channel and we started doing some overdubbing each time a group would come in i'd get a little more daring with it we'd try different things the groups were getting more daring in that they were doing more interesting material so you know we're getting later on you know we're doing you know duran duran or or, or some techno or, yeah. yeah techno sort of things etc prince yep and with that i'm starting to not only just work with EQ on these channels, but to start to throw in different effects that I would have never thought of using outside of a guitar or something. So we're starting yeah. to flange things, starting to distort things, etc. And as we get later into the or into the middle of the 90s, I'm starting to really kind of get a handle on this. And the thing is, is that Stanford by this time had seven or eight groups. They were always recording all of a sudden they started pushing out my other clients and i started actually liking it because everyone, a lot of my other clients of you know especially if you know we, i did i was doing a lot of like you know hair metal bands and stuff like that you know a lot of them would skip out on paying or they were just druggies or they were not they weren't as pleasant to work with as these kids from stanford who were all squeaky clean and and were having fun doing this and so i started having fun doing that as well and i'm just doing it so much of it by 95, 96. And I'm only still working at Stanford. That's the only school I'm working with. But they're keeping me busy almost year round. And of course, you know, I still have my other clients. So, you know, summer comes along, I'm doing this, that, and the other thing. The other thing I was doing a lot was ice skating music, ed- editing, you know, with a razor blade on tape. And so I was doing that for Brian Boitano and Rudy Galindo and, and then all of the skaters in the whole ice capades or whatever, you know. Awesome. I, I do whole, whole programs. <laughs> who, who knew that there was a connection? 
connection between the ice capades and acapella, although... Well, you know, I'll tell you, like <laughs> the next thing that comes up here is I'd been doing stuff for Brian Boitano, who I went to high school with, you know, <laughs> since I started. And Brian was doing a lot of work with me, not only for himself, but he was also producing some other shows by that time. And, and I was doing it for a lot of the other, the major ice skaters of the day. But at one point, I had switched over from doing it with a razor blade on analog tape to a brand new technology that this company called DigiDesign, which was right across the bay from me, had started up with using computer. And we could put <laughs> we could put a song into a computer and we can actually do the editing, but we could do the editing in some new ways where we can actually crossfade things, do things that wouldn't have worked before, cuts that wouldn't have worked before. Mm-hmm. So Well, that didn't stick around for very long, huh? No, no. <laughs> and this actually came out about the same time as I started doing the acapella stuff in the late 80s. Yeah. I was actually a beta tester for this new company, DigiDesign, because some of my clients worked for that company. So I was kind of in on the ground floor of that, and they would just give me stuff to play with because I was a, you know, an actual professional recording studio and you know will this work in the real world and i found that it worked really well for things like editing the ice skating music etc so i was doing that for some years for them and there was one time where brian boitano needed track really quickly and i was completely booked with stanford i couldn't do it and brian called my mom and said you know well what can we do so my mom said she'd call around some other studios and see if anybody else has an editing system. She called someone in San Francisco, who she can't remember who that was now, who recommended somebody else, and we gave that number to Brian. And then later, my mom followed up with Brian, said, you know, did everything work out? And he said, you know what? It was great. And what's really weird, I didn't go to a studio. It was in some guy's bedroom, and it was great. (laughs) My mom says, at that moment, a light bulb went off because my dad had retired the year before, and my mom was trying to figure out how she can get off this hamster wheel. And by this time, we had bought out those other three brothers, so we completely owned the studio. And she said, look, this other guy's doing this out of their bedroom, and that system's small enough. And Pro Tools was just starting to become viable. You know, we didn't need that 2,000 square foot space to house all these huge pieces of equipment. And so in 1996, I made the plunge thinking the acapella thing is really kind of supporting me right now. I can kind of stay in that and build something way smaller since I don't have to accommodate a drum kit or all this other stuff anymore. Or, you know, I was recording small orchestras and uh, big bands, that sort of thing. So, you know, I had space big enough for that. But I'm thinking for just a few singers, don't have to do that. And so I built a studio in my house and we were very lucky to be able to see that writing on the wall because a lot of other studios you know the next five or ten years went out of business just because they weren't prepared for this onslaught of new recording and they just kind of died we were lucky that we were at a good position still we could actually sell the studio we sold it to one of mc hammer's sidemen or something i remember (laughs) about a year later i saw a tv interview with mc hammer and he was in my old studio wow (laughs) Yeah. Kudos to any listener that can go and look up that footage, please. Yeah, that'd be kind of (laughs) cool. So, yeah. So, it was actually Brian Boitano who convinced my mom to send me off into acapella la la land for the rest of my life wow <laughs> so there is that connection <laughs> well hats off to brian <laughs> yeah thank you yeah thank you brian. And, and you know i i actually didn't know that story until about a week ago when my mom told me oh <laughs> and now look what it's become your studio there at your house in milpitas is 
magical. I mean, I've recorded a few things in there and it's, there's just something special about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I built it specifically to be for occupy. I had the designer, I told the designer, this is going to be a room for voices. So yeah. I don't really care so much that you design it for drums or anything else. And, and he built an amazing space for me. Absolutely. Or designed an amazing space. He's actually never been here, but it really came out great. So yeah, so that was Brian who sent me into Acapella La La Land for the rest of my life. I mean, I just feel like all of these people that are now recording in their bedrooms and especially during COVID, throwing their duvets over their coat closets and things <laughs> like that. This was done. You did this before COVID made it cool. Yeah. And or, it, or necessary, at least. Seriously. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, you know, besides all, all of the things I did over the years, you know, blah, blah, blah. Great. But I was ready to throw in the towel and in about 2017, 2018. I'm starting to lose my hearing a little bit. I'm getting a little old for the styles that some people are wanting to do. I'm kind of, you know, getting to that grumpy old man phase. So <laughs> I announced I announced I would retire and with every intention of doing so in November of 2019. But at that point, there were still a few little undone things. And then I was talking with On Air about going over to Germany and producing an album with them in person. We'd already done some great albums together but uh, I hadn't been with them. They wanted me to come over there. And so we had it all set up that we would record in this amazing studio, which is in a castle outside of Dresden. Wow. The Germans know how to do their music venues right, I have to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then some engineers would know of Sylvia Massey who does what's called adventure recording, just does some crazy stuff. She records groups like, you know, Tool and other more kind of hard rock sort of things. But I talked to her about co-producing this with me in Germany, and she said that was one of her favorite studios anyway. And so I was going to get her involved in her first acapella recording. And, you know, she's so industrial and crazy, and she, she runs signals through these crazy, crazy things. And so I really wanted to hear what that would sound like. And especially using a group like On Air as our guinea pigs, it was going to be amazing. So I decided I would postpone until summer of 2020. And that was, you know, I mean, the history of what happened between November of 2019 and June of 2020 completely changed the world. And I'm in a lot of ways, I'm really glad I did not sell my, you know, I was just going to sell my whole house and studio and everything at the wow. end of 2019 and kind of move on to the next phase of my life, which is like sitting in a chair and eating bonbons or something. <laughs> Can I join you? Yeah. No. As long as as long as your Nespresso machine goes with you. Bill, oh, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, Nespresso okay machine goes with me where, wherever I go. But that's yeah. about it. That was a given. <laughs> yeah. So we got that, you know, we had that happen, you know, the COVID thing. And at, at that point, we all became kind of essential workers, right? It was yeah. just like now everybody's driven inside and we have to and we have to help them get their recordings done. And this included things like Broadway. Broadway shut down. What did all those people do? They all had to find new ways to make money and be creative. I got, you know, again through acapella, through Ellie Landau, he connected me with this project where I worked with the original cast of the prom and they did a this cool little video and kind of take off on the show. And I got to mix that and that was something I wouldn't have done. And that was a lot of fun. And then of course 
just all these other crazy projects of, of people just trying to survive on their own and, and figure out ways to do things, you know, recording with cell phones and things like that. Uh-huh. And it, that was A, a pain, and B, a really cool challenge, and C, created some new sounds that I thought was kind of cool. You know, so I kind of got rejuvenated <laughs> during that time because I, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to do anything else anyway. You know, we were all kind of trapped inside. And so I was glad that I still had the studio. I am still planning on retiring and that'll probably happen. I, I won't believe you until it happens. <laughs> it will definitely happen because I, because what's really funny is that I really want to and I really need to. Mm-hmm. I have other things that I'm doing. I'm actually very big in historical preservation. Um, cool. I'm actually a Santa Clara County commissioner on the Historical Heritage Commission where we look at any projects that are going to come up that in historical areas that might, you know, not quite meld with what's already there. And in fact, my first official duty with that was on a building at Stanford University. So I went full <laughs> and it circle. it comes full circle, yeah. It went full circle. And so I went out to Stanford and we looked at all of the buildings there and, and the proposed plans. And we are the first step of approval for that sort of thing. So once it gets by us, then it goes to the building commissions and things like that. Because it is in a historical area and it's, it's between two other historical buildings. And so, you know, we're looking at the plans and, and, and they did a really good job keeping things, being able to transition things. They eyeballed that really well. We made a few suggestions to, you know, do some little fake roof line things. But outside of that, you know, we approved that. So I did that. I'm also the president of our city's uh, historical society. I have been for years. And, and so we're building a museum, doing all this other stuff. So I really want time to do that sort of stuff, you know. Well, I think you've, I think you've earned it. Yeah, yeah. I feel good uh, as to what I've contributed, and I'm amazed that I survived. I mean, my only qualification, I, I could have probably been an assistant manager at McDonald's or something. But, you know, I put all my eggs into the being a musician basket, and this is not at all what I expected, but I'm very happy with it. You know, I think the biggest benefit I got out of it was just the acapella community worldwide. And um, I think just the friendships and the experiences that I've been able to get all around the world has been just super rewarding. So that's my favorite part. Well, I can't think of a better way to end our time, which we could spend forever talking to you because you have such wonderful stories about your beginnings and kind of more broadly our beginnings. But I just want to say thank you so much to Bill Hare for your time, for your enthusiasm and all of the hard work and energy and effort you've put into everything that you have done and everything you continue to do. Thank you so much. And, you know, for all of the fortunate and unfortunate events that led to this, I think as an occupation community, we are very grateful to all that you have done for us. And I'm hoping that that, you know, retirement gets pushed off a little bit further and a little bit further as much as I I know you have earned your free time. And I want to see you get to that a little selfishly. I'm glad you're still around for a little bit longer. I'll, I'll always be around. I've always said that once I stop doing this job, I will still be going to all of the festivals and stuff like that because you're my people. And, you know, and, and that's what I got out of this. Thank you again to Bill Hare. And we will talk to you again next time on The Pulse. And as a special treat for our radio listeners to close out this special episode of The Pulse, we'll now listen to some of Bill's favorite tracks that he's worked on over the years. 